This Irish man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. And today's going to be a very heavy show, and I apologize in advance, but there's so much issues we need to discuss. We've got a great guest lined up for you in the second half of the show. We're going to talk to an economist. I want to talk to him about the Fed. I want to talk to him about inflation. But before we do, there's a debate going on in your country and around the world that is absolutely critical that needs to be discussed. And it needs to be discussed in a principled, honest way. Not by party politics, not by what your president says, or not what by what certain parties say, but by the principles. And that is about vaccines and vaccines passports. But before we discuss that, as we always do on this show, it's absolutely critical to take a step back and understand the philosophical differences between people. Because we are two very different sets of people. We look at things very different ways. And it's easy to just get into like a vaccine debate and kind of go, hey, you should be this or you should have this opinion. and never actually understand the differences between people. There are two sets of people in this world. There are people who actually understand that you're an individual, that you're sovereign, that you're a being, and that what your job is to do is to look at what's best for you and to look at what's best for your family. That's one attitude. That's one philosophy, quote unquote. The second one is a collectivist mentality. It's that it's not what's best for you or what's best for your family. It's what's best for society, that we need to have quote-unquote, a common good. And yes, sometimes you may be the beneficiary of that common good. There might be some policies that will be enacted, some principles that will be enacted that you'll you'll be a benefit from. But there's also an understanding that we don't look after you, we look after what's best for society. And yes, some policies may be good for you, but some policies may be bad for you. And that's just the price of admission, folks. That's what you've just got to understand, because we are not individuals. We're not sovereign beings. We're a collective. We're white. We're black. We're gay. We're straight. We're an American. We're European. We're Irish. Whatever the the group identity is, that is what we are defined by. And sometimes you succeed and some side we fail. On top of that, you need to understand that there are three questions you need to answer. And this happens on the debate we're just going to talk about now about vaccines and vaccines passports. But this is true for any topic of debate. Do you have free will? Do you have free will to act how you want? Or should you be coerced if you don't act the right way? Second of all, we just discussed it. Are you an individual? So do you have free will and are you an individual? Because most of the people who believe in, in a collective would say you may have free will as long as you do what we want you to do. And you may be an individual, but you're an individual as part of a collective. The second, that's the second one. The third question is, do you have a God-given right to be an idiot? This is a principle that we are sorely lacking today. And I would argue, yes, you do. And when I say you have a God-given right to be an idiot, what do I mean by that? I don't mean be an idiot. I mean, just do something that I deem idiotic. Let me give you a prime example. I think drugs are not good. I've been around drugs in volunteer work. I have seen people take drugs. The amount of people I have seen take drugs and not really affect their life is minuscule. 
I have seen people do drugs and affect their life, affect their families in a really bad, negative way. I've seen them get in trouble with drug dealers. I've seen them get in financial hardship. That's my opinion. But do you have a right to be an idiot and do that, even though I think it's not a good thing? Sure. Why? Because you have free will. I may think you're an idiot. I may think you're wrong. I may think you're dumb. I may think you're stupid. But guess what? I don't have a right to coerce you. I don't have a right to compel you to act a certain way. You have a right to do it because you're an individual, an individual who is sovereign and has free will. Today, look around at the debate. I love all these people who want to talk about freedom. But how many people actually believe in freedom, but once it's only defined by what they believe in? Because we have been so arrogant as a people for the longest time that we think, hey, guess what? I have this opinion. Therefore, everyone should have my opinion. It's on left. It's on right. It's on libertarians. Everyone does. It. Hey, you're not libertarian enough. Oh, okay. You got to Republicans. Well, you're one of those ideologues. You're, you're one of those Tea Party people. No, we don't like you. The left hates you. We have this everywhere. This arrogance. Now, let's talk about the vaccine debate. Look at what's happening in your country right now with regards to vaccines. You have all these morning shows and all these hosts who literally blow with the wind. Whatever is popular, they say, oh, I have this popular opinion. Oh, I'm going to jump on that ship. And it's so done in such an arrogant way that they are so self-assured that they are right. They would convince you. But all they are doing is jumping on the popular bandwagon. You have morning show hosts out there who are like, if you don't get a vaccine, you're dumb, you're stupid, and you're selfish. There was one of your morning hosts, who I won't name, who on Good Friday was like, oh, and Christ laid down his cross, but you can't get the vaccine, really? Arrogant, stupid, jumping on a bandwagon. Do you have the right to free will? Because here's the thing. When you talk about vaccines, especially in America, it's a highly political issue on both sides. I know people who are anti-vaxxers, who don't like vaccines, who don't want to put it in their system. And you'd listen to them and you're going to go, if you dare say, hey, well, I'm going to get the vaccine, you're, you're ostracized. You're like, oh, my God, what are you? Are you dumb? Are you stupid? Then you've got people on the other side. If you say you're going to get the vaccine or you're not, you are go or you're not going to get the vaccine, are you dumb? Are you stupid? How about this understanding that you're a free individual and that you have a right as a sovereign individual to choose your path, that you, dare I say it and use the language of the left, you have a right to choose. And this is where I'll really get to my friends on the left, you know, who are all oh, pro-vaccine, my body, my choice. But do we understand that on any side? Because here's the thing. If you have... A merit-based society. I know. Oh, my God. A merit-based society. Oh, my God, John. I'm so triggered listening to you. I know. It's shocking, isn't it? If you have a merit-based society, there is enough evidence out there on these vaccines that, hey, maybe you should consider them. You know, if you look at the real-time data that we have had in Israel, oh, my God, are you telling us to, to be in Israel? Are you going to say some nice things about those Jewish people? Yeah, I am. Look at the real-time data. Look at their data on, uh, on hospitalizations. Look at their, uh, their data on ICUs. Look at their data on cases. Look at their data on, on deaths. It's drowned dramatically to fractionally zero of the society. 
It's such a minuscule part of society that has coronavirus there right now. There is real-time data. And again, it's because of Pfizer. It's because of the Pfizer vaccine. They have been giving this real-time data. Now, I know people who are in the, you know, don't like vaccines are like, yeah, that might be great, but what happens in five years' time? We don't have that data. Got it. But you have a right to make that choice. But also on the likewise, on the flip side, there is enough data to say, you know what, maybe if you're vulnerable or if you're over a certain age, you should get the vaccine. But you have a right to choose. But likewise, on the flip side of things, if you look at the data around the world, again, this is real-time data, and it, it does fluctuate from country to country. But here's some of the numbers for you. If you're under between the ages of zero and nine, you have less than a 0.001% chance of dying if you catch coronavirus. If you're between the ages of 10 and 39, you have a 0.2% chance of dying if you get coronavirus. If you're 40 to 49, you have a 0.4% chance of dying if you get coronavirus. 50 to 59, it goes up. This is where it starts going up quickly. It's 1.3%. 60 to 69, it's 3.6%. 70 to 79, it goes up to 8%. And 80 plus, it's 14, about 15%. These are real-time numbers. Not over a week, not over a month, but over the coronavirus lifetime. That is numbers. Are you telling me that if you're, let's say, 25 or whatever number you are, you're young, you're healthy, you're fit, you're vibrant, and you live a certain lifestyle that you're not out in the public all the time? You know, you may work from home. And you're looking at these numbers kind of going, if I get coronavirus, there's a 0.2% chance I'm going to die. You know what? Maybe I'm going to risk it. I'm fit. I'm healthy. I think I can do it. Do you think they have a right to do that? To go, I'm not having it. Or how about the people that we never even seem to talk about anymore? The people who have had coronavirus and live, that have antibodies in their system. They're not going to get coronavirus. They're not going to get the vaccine. Do they have that right? Because you really ever see them spoken about. It's like, oh, they're, they're dumb. If you're not getting a vaccine, you're dumb. Do you have a right to be an individual? Because this is a fundamental debate that we need to talk about week in and week out. You see, I may look at your lifestyle as a Christian or as an individual and kind of go, hey, guess what? You do that. That's really dumb. That's stupid. Don't do that. But guess what? You have a right then to go, okay, you know what, John? Why do you think it's dumb? And I'll tell you it's dumb because of A, B, and C. And you might go, John has a good point. I should re, you know, change my lifestyle. You know, let's give you a simple example. Hey, you have a Big Mac seven days a week. Hey, maybe you don't have a Big Mac. Maybe have one five days a week. Okay, John, you've got a good point. I, I might change my lifestyle. But if I tell you don't do it and you're like, nah, Big Macs are cool. Have one every day. It's, it's you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, for me, it's a Big Mac a day. I don't have a right to compel you. I don't have a right to force you. I don't have a right to guilt trip you into it and talk about how you should be, be so selfish, that you're a burden to society, that you're a burden to the health system. This is the idea of freedom. And it is an idea that is dying on a really dramatic rate on all sides. The understanding that as a free individual, you have a fundamental God-given right to chart your own course once you're responsible for your actions. But on top of that, we now are talking about vaccine passports. Vaccine passports, huh? Now, here's an understanding. This is a topic that needs to be debated in very cool terms. 
very rational terms. Adam Smith is widely considered one of the smartest men who ever lived. He wrote Wealth of Nations and the Invisible Hand of the Market. His work is unbelievably intelligent. If you've never checked it out, check it out. But Adam Smith in Wealth of Nations said, the free movement for all is the only principle. It's a basic human right and a first principle that gives everyone the best opportunity to secure the best monetary resort for their labor or their services or their products. He believed in the free movement of people. He advocated for it. He said people are free, that it's not right to trap them in one place. Do you have a right to have a vaccine passport in your country? Is it a fundamental principle? Do you have a right to travel? Do you have a right to free movement? Okay, this is not a simple yes or no question. This is a lured question. The first thing I would ask you, which should be the question that it won, that everyone asks about every policy, is it constitutional? Go read Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution and ask yourself, where can you apply a vaccine passport? Now, I know a lot of my friends on the left will kind of go, well, John, the, the, uh, you know that general welfare clause y'all have over there? You know, that's, that's where I think the vaccine, yeah, okay, general welfare doesn't mean that. But that's where it's gone. But where else is it? Is this a constitutional power? Is this a power that belongs in Congress? If you're, after you do that, then go read Article 2. Is it a presidential power? That's the first question. The second question. Is, let's just say the argument is there. That what we need to do is just while coronavirus is around in the world, we need these vaccine passports. But the minute coronavirus goes away, we don't need to have this passport anymore. Does the government have any credibility in your eyes? Does any government around the world have any credibility? Just look at the coronavirus. Look at how the goalposts have constantly moved. It's just 15 days to slow the spread. We need to stop this. We need to stop the hospitalizations. We need to stop the, you know, save our ICU beds. We need to save ventilators. We need to save the public. Well, you know, the numbers are too high. Have you seen all these excuses recycled and changed to stop you doing living your life? Does the government have any credibility? Has the government ever said, hey, if you do this for 15 days, then goes away, and it actually did? Or is it just constantly, if government got its foot on your throat? And it's never let it up. It just changes the criteria. You see, the part of the problem that my friends on the left or my friends on the right who are more progressive never ever want to admit is that the reason people like me, who are all oh, those ideologues who don't like government and, oh, you're all so nasty, John. The one thing that they never ever do is understand that the reason we're skeptical and that we are skeptical is because of human nature. We're skeptical because of principles, but we're also skeptical on what the actions of government have been. That if government actually had credibility, my job would be a lot harder. If government actually said, you know, we're going to slow the curve, 15 days to slow the curve. And then it actually said, okay, we've done it. Now leave us alone. People like me wouldn't have any arguments. We'd argue on a moral case, but if they actually said, you know, we did, we said 15 days and we left you all alone after. But government constantly moves the goalposts. It takes a little inch 
It can never get to a mile. It never gets there. It can never set a really audacious target when it's about control. It's all about progressing. We'll set this inch here and we'll gain that inch. And then we we'll set another inch and then gain another bit. And slowly but surely, all of a sudden, you, you get to hit that mile target. That is what progressive, progressivism is all about. If you want to believe in government control, name one policy over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years that it said, we're going to do X, and then it stopped. Always. If you find one, get in touch with me on social media, at Freedom Disciple, on Facebook, on Twitter. Because what's happened is, and again, there's so much evidence of real time. This is not a philosophical debate anymore. This is real-time data, real-time evidence, real-world evidence that says, you know what? When government talks about the, the problem that we have to solve in society, it always gets to the worst case scenario real quick. It becomes a slippery slope of erosion of your rights. You have that idiot Fauci running around. Why anyone listens to this man anymore is unbelievable. Honestly, I don't care what your politics are. The guy has been wrong on so much and has changed and has argued with himself. You could get video evidence of him literally saying one thing on this day and then a week or two later arguing with himself. It is literally that bad. But he's out giving all these press conferences because, oh, Fauci's wonderful. Oh, Fauci, I love you, Fauci. Is talking about there, there's no reason why anyone should ever shake hands again. Really? Really? This is where we're going now. We're, we're talking about 15 days to slow the spread to a year later. There's no reason anyone should ever shake hands again. Literally bite me. And I'm not a really touchy-feely person, but even I'm saying, bite me and shut up. But here's where it gets to the point. If you get to a point of, hey, the government shouldn't do this, John. Okay? This is where you need to make up your own mind. You need to do your own research. Is it constitutional? Should the government have this power? What's the government's credibility like? The problem that we have right now and this is not me telling you I told you so or you know, saying, hey, you should have listened to me. But one of the reasons people like me advocate for the free market is because when you have a free market, it's free of government control. There is no cronyism. And if there is any cronyism, it's rooted out really quickly because there is no relationship between government and, and the market. It's government doing the laws or whatever it has to do in the Constitution and then the free market deciding. And when I say the free market, I don't mean business to society. I mean you. You get to decide. Here's the thing. If you don't believe that uh, vaccine passports are constitutional or you don't want the government having the power, there's a good chance we're going to start seeing it through the free market. And it's not a free market, but true business. Because businesses are in bed. You're starting to see public-private partnerships. Imagine you're a business and you go, you know what? I don't want anyone wearing a mask in my business store. You can come on in, shop if you want. If, you, if you're triggered by that, go shop elsewhere. But if you want to come in, don't have to wear a mask. Imagine doing it in a store that way today. And imagine it gets, starts getting out. You see, the problem that we have is that we live in a culture where men are spineless and women are just unbelievably spineless as well. Because look at what's happening in your country right now with all this wokeness crap. With all this ESG scores, we've been talking about the, the Great Reset. It seems every day, I love your country so much, but it seems every day I come across a new story where I'm like, you guys are 
losing your minds. Stop. Let me give you two stories. One, I don't really want to talk too much about because you all have been talking about it to death. The MLB All-Star Game. Oh, Georgia passed the Jim Crow laws. It's racist. Really? Go read them. Here's the one thing that annoys me about so many of my friends on the left. They make up all these irrelevant debates. Go read Jim Crow. Go understand what happened in Jim Crow. I'll wait. It's really bad. If you can read Jim Crow and then you can read what Georgia did and get any correlation, you're an idiot. It's crap. It's like Jeb Gillibrand this week, senator from New York. Oh, child care is infrastructure. Shut up. I know I'm normally the Gandhi person, but today I'm sick and I'm tired. But it goes even further than this. This is the stupidest story I've read this week. United Airlines, an airline I've flown with quite a bit internally in your country. It's a, I've never had any issues. Thank touch wood, I've never had a whole lot of airline issues in your stuff. My luggage was lost once in LA and it got sorted real quick. But apart from that, very few issues. Had a car hire company, but airlines, just get in, ring me. I don't care. I don't care how nice you are. I just want my seat, want my, you know, little mask, put my mask on, put on my earphones, go sleep, and then wake up an hour or two, three hours later, get off the plane and pick up my luggage and leave. United Airlines, by 2030, we're going to have 50% of our trained pilots, women or minorities. Really? This is what you're doing. I'm a merit-based guy, 100%. Do what you're best to do. But of all things, like jobs that are, there's a chance of life and death. You know, let's say the Blaze had this criteria, right? I think it was stupid. I kind of go, hey, look, ever who gets listened to the most, you know, merit-based. But if the Blaze came out with this policy, that we should have 50% of our hosts who are met my, uh, women or minorities. Kind of go, eh, okay. It's not going to kill anyone. It's not a hill I'm going to die on. It wouldn't be what I'd say Glenn or Mark would want to do, but look, let's, you know, whatever happens. But it's not going to kill anyone. Okay, there's women, there's not women, there's minorities, whatever. Let them hire who they want to hire. I don't care. Killing people, getting in airlines. You're going to have 50%. The criteria for flying an airline is what? that you can fly it safely. This is my shock you. Maybe I'm in a minority, but I've been on a lot of planes in my life. I've been really lucky or unlucky, depending on what you think. I have never been in an airline and I got on the plane and went, hmm, check on me safety belt. Gee, I wonder who the flight, the, the captain is today. Is it a woman? Oh, it's a man. Is he, Oh, I wonder, is, is he black or is he white or is he Asian or is he, I wonder what his sexuality is. Is he gay or straight? Hmm, I wonder how many women or men he sleeps with. Or she sleeps with. I don't care. You know what my criteria about the pilot is? Get me there safely, buddy. Get me there. That's all I care about. And let me get off. Oh, and the other thing I care about is get me there on time. But here's the thing. I know we've just had a bit of fun for a minute there. But all this wokeness, the public-private partnerships with business involved in governments, they can now get to a point where the government doesn't have to do this. But here's where the free market is absolutely critical. Because the problem that you're going to have with all these companies with the Great Reset is they're going to institute all these policies. And if a large part of conservatives and Republicans go, the hell with you, I'm never buying your product again. I am never flying United again. I am never watching MLB again. And guess what? If let's say all 50% did that, the businesses would struggle and some businesses would go out of business. What do you think is going to happen to them? They're going to get bailed out. The Fed is going to come in. Washington is going to come in, especially if they're woke enough. 
Oh, you see, the problem there was all those right wingers. They put them out of business. We can't do it. We're going to tax them and put them into business. They likewise with mask mandates. If a business says you have to wear a mask and everyone says down south, the hell with you, we're not buying there. Those, all those right wingers, all those Nazis and white supremacists, put them out of business. We got to support them. We got to make it right. We need to have the general welfare. We can't have the right win. So what is the solution to all of this? We need to start having all these conversations. We do in this show every week, but we need to start encouraging them. I, can't, I can only change so much. I'm doing a speaking tour this year. I can only do so much. Where you will really change is where you start having these conversations with your friends. Where I get research and give you all the ammunition of breaking things down to principles. You take everything I say where you, I'm right or whether I'm wrong, and you make it your message. Where you go in and talk to a friend. Go talk to your neighbor. Go talk to your coworker. Go talk to your religious people. Go talk to your pastor and say, you need to start speaking out about this. You need to start raising these issues. Because here's what we need. We're facing major problems, but the answer is in your founding documents. The answer is individualism. The answer is basic first principles. The answer is just leaving people alone. The answer is freedom. The answer is you have a right to be an idiot. Even if I, you live a life that I disagree with, once you're not hurting other people, go for it. Have at it, man. These are the answers. And the error is growing late. It's growing dark. We are facing all these problems. We can solve them, but we need to start acting now. We need to start having these discussions. And I must stress this. When you're having those discussions, do not put in a hook of, this is why you need to vote Republican. This is why you need to vote Donald Trump. Trump 2024. Leave all that out of it. Have that as another conversation if that's what you wish. But we need to start making the case for freedom, for principles. Because if we don't, our world is going to end. But if we do, we will be part of the greatest comeback story man has ever written as man. I know which one of those options I choose. What choose you? So I'm now joined by Alexander Salter. He's an economist. He uh, is an associate professor at Rawls College of Business in Texas Tech. He's a published author. He wor- he's been in the Wall Street Journal, National Review, The Hill, lots of uh, great pl- places like that. He talks about a lot about economics and free markets from more of a libertarian point of view. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. Jonathan, it's my pleasure. So there's a lot of things that are going on in the economy right now. We've been talking about them on this show for the last several, it feels like forever. And, you know, with things like the Great Reset, we're talking about inflation, we're talking about coronavirus. But you've been talking about a lot of different issues over the last sort of month or so about inflation isn't the biggest issue. But I think it's important that we actually lay a groundwork for the problems that we're facing right now, because it's so easy to look at the problems we face and kind of go, it's Joe Biden, it's Donald Trump. But in large, like these problems haven't are not just like six months or a year old. These are like five, 10, 15, 20, 30 years old. So if you look at like the like one example is that look at the assets under the under control of the Federal Reserve. You know, 2008, it was less than a trillion dollars. To, to up to 2015, it's gone up to 4.5 trillion dollars. Today, it's approaching 7.7 trillion dollars. 
first of all, to explain it in layman's terms to everyone, when the Federal Reserve has an asset on its books, what does that mean? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. And uh, it's good that we were focusing on 2008 because I think that's when a lot of the changes for the worst set in. But really with the Fed, you could pick pretty much any year and there's some unfortunate stuff going on. So I'm not, I'm not uh, of the opinion that this is an institution that has ever clothed itself in glory. But getting back to basics, when the Federal Reserve purchases an asset or otherwise has an asset on, it, on its books, it creates money and credits the account of the person from whom it buys the asset. It credits the account with dollars. The Federal Reserve is the monopoly supplier of our fiat money. So the way monetary policy used to work before the 2008 financial crisis is, if the Fed wanted to expand the money supply, it would purchase an asset, typically a short-term government bond. It would credit the accounts of the party from whom it purchased that asset. That money would get deposited into the banking system, which would result in monetary expansion. The overall volume of the money supply would rise and economic activity would pick up. So that's expansionary monetary policy in brief. Uh, of course, after 2008, things changed quite a bit. Absolutely. So one of the big changes that really happened, and I'd ask you to break this down in this, uh, talk to me like I'm a five-year-old, because one of the fundamental policies that happened in 2008 with the bailouts uh, was the Federal Reserve changing their operation of system from a corridor system to a floor system, and it has never actually gone back. Now, there's obviously pros and cons to that. People look at different things. But first of all, to, before we get into the big issues, what, what did that, that change entail? Absolutely. Something we definitely need to talk about. So the first thing I need to say about this is if you read the financial press, you'll get the implication or the impression that monetary policy is somehow about interest rates. Ideally, it's not. Monetary policy is about the money supply, as its name suggests. It's true that central banks use interest rates as a barometer for gauging the stance of monetary policy, especially in the short run. But really, you don't want monetary policy to have too much of an effect on interest rates if you can avoid it, because interest rates are one of the economy's most important prices, the price of capital. And ideally, you want to either expand or contract the money supply without having an effect on relative prices. Right? Economists are always talking about the importance of relative prices, such as the price of capital relative to other valuable goods. So the way that monetary policy used to work is the Federal Reserve would use the short-term interest rate known as the Fed funds rate as a barometer for whether monetary policy was tight or loose in the short run. However, with the advent of the 2008 financial crisis, the federal funds rate, which is actually determined in, the, in a market, it's not set arbitrarily by the Federal Reserve. The federal funds rate is the rate that banks charge each other, private banks charge each other for overnight loans. However, with the advent of the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed started paying banks interest on the excess reserves that those banks held in their bank accounts at the Fed. So now we've switched from using a market rate, which is sometimes influenced by the Fed in the course of monetary policy, to an administered rate that is controlled by the Fed. The amount of interest that the Federal Reserve pays banks to keep excess reserves on hands that's an administered rate. It's determined by the Fed. It's not set under the market. It can be set more or less by fiat. And so by switching from a more or less market-based system to monetary policy to a more or less administrative fiat system for monetary policy, we've we'd inadvertently resulted in an operating framework for monetary policy where the link between the volume of assets on the Fed's books and the overall rate of inflation has gotten completely unhinged. 
right? We're used to thinking the Fed prints money, it buys assets, that creates inflation. Well, only in a world where the Fed doesn't pay banks not to lend. If the Federal Reserve is paying banks not to lend out all that new money it creates, in essence, if the Fed is borrowing back that new liquidity from banks, then the money supply and the monetary base, really, right, the volume of assets on the Fed's books can become arbitrarily large without creating inflation. Many people think that this is a good thing, right, because they don't like inflation. And while inflation, all else being equal, isn't great, this gives the Fed a lot more wiggle room to basically pick winners and losers in the financial system without any consequences. Under the old system, if inflation got too high, the Federal Reserve knew it had to step on the brakes, right? The Fed could only go so far with expansionary policy without creating consequences that would cause it to reverse itself. Now that feedback mechanism is broken. It's more or less gone. Because if I can just pay banks not to lend, I can make the monetary base as large as I want. I can allocate credit however I want to politically favored firms, whatever. This really increases the scope for monetary meddling by the Federal Reserve. And I regard it as a system that is not good for the American people. Absolutely. And one of the things that frustrates me is that, is there actually just as a, just as a side point to, for the philosophical question, how many people, and you conclude like the likes of Janet Yellen and this, do you think actually understands basic economics? Because like you just mentioned one thing there, I'll give you a simple example, the interest rates. Everyone, if you go, it's we always look at economics from where our vested interest is, and that's not the way an economy should work. So like, people might go, well, I'm going to borrow up money to fund a business, or I'm going to buy a car, I'm going to buy a house. I want the lowest interest rate as possible, and that's good for me, so it's good for the market. That's not the case because it actually hurts other people because years and years ago, people's 401ks, large chunks of their money was raised on the bonds, which was then was based on how they made money was the interest rate. When you bring all those interest rates down to, you know, flood the money economy with money, all of a sudden those 401ks aren't performing as well and got to look maybe at the stock market and more risk adverse um, for their pensions. And it's not just, it's, it's not a case of one size fits all. How many people do you actually think know basic economic policy? I'm not talking at your level. I'm talking about the average guy in the street that's in charge of these, of these policies. Precious few, unfortunately. And uh, I know that you didn't mean people who had studied economics at an advanced level, but even among credentialed people, the actual understanding of basic economics is abysmally low. It's not just the man in the street. It's the policymakers. It's the financial journalists. Everyone seems to be talking about everything except where the action is. Just like that point that you made, right? What's good for a business or a household is not necessarily good for the economy as a whole. We teach that on day one of principles of economics, especially if we're doing a macroeconomics unit. There's even a name for it. It's called the fallacy of composition, right? What's true of the parts is not necessarily true of the whole. Alex Salter is made up of cells. Cells are invisible to the naked eye. Therefore, Alex Salter is invisible to the naked eye clearly a fallacious, fallacious conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. So it's true that households and businesses like lower interest rates, because if you're a consumer, you can borrow money to spend it on stuff, borrowing against future income. If you're a business, you can expand productive capacity, right? So these things are clearly good, or at least offer households and businesses options, which they otherwise might not have. But that doesn't mean that low interest rate policy is good for the economy as a whole. Now, I want to interject some caution I don't think that central banks actually have the power to hold interest rates all that low for very long. I think eventually, at least under the old system, right, under the, uh, the, the pre-2008 system, 
I think the fact that we saw a global decline in interest rates was really just about the fact that the supply of global capital was rising faster than the demand for global capital. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Central banks can affect interest rates in the short run, but at least under the old system in the long run, it's about real economic factors, things, are in, things that are independent of the money supply, right? Deep structural factors in both national and the international economy. Uh, but what's going on right now with the floor system, with the Federal Reserve switching, switching from using market interest rates as a barometer to administered executive fiat set interest rates as a policy tool, a lot of the conventional economic wisdom doesn't apply anymore. And we're going to have to find a way of understanding the monetary policy transmission mechanisms, basically the way it works in this new floor system, right? We've had it for a decade and we still don't understand it all that well. There's been an explosion of scholarship, but I think that a lot of that is missing the basic point that this is basically freeing up central banks to purchase assets from preferred counterparties. And not enough people appreciate the fact that even though central bankers are supposed to be disinterested technocrats, it's ultimately a political enterprise. We might want to circumscribe the, their ability to operate independently because, again, they're basically doing what they're doing to maximize their interests and satisfy their concerns, which are not necessarily the interests and concerns of the American people. So take a step back. In an ideal world, um, to, in, the, in the economic point of view, what's the, is there a role for a Federal Reserve today? Conditional on the existence of the Federal Reserve, I think that there is a role that it can play where it would be, it would at least do no harm. Okay, so what is so what then? If there is that role for the Federal Reserve, what is the what is the role of the Federal Reserve or, or a healthy Federal Reserve? Right, I'm going to drop a fancy term on you, and then I'm going to explain it. What explain what it means? What I want the Fed to do is to uphold. Here it comes: allocatively neutral demand stabilization. So let's unpack okay. that a little bit. The Federal Reserve should make sure that there is an adequate supply of money necessary to the needs of commerce. No more, no less. In particular, the Federal Reserve should make sure that people's liquidity demands are met without interfering with the process by which the market determines the relative prices of goods and services, right? This gets back to something that I was talking about earlier. Prices are a very, very important economic mechanism for creating order in markets, right? Prices are a signal wrapped in an incentive, as some of my former professors in graduate school used to say. The signaling bit pertains to information. Prices convey information about real resource scarcities. Prices are also an incentive. When prices are high, we have an incentive to be more careful with using that resource, to exercise greater stewardship, to economize on our use of that resource, etc. So the market pricing process does a great job at creating order in commercial life so long as the market for money balances is well behaved. That one market, because we've decided that we're going to be on a fiat money system and the Federal Reserve is the monopoly supplier of fiat money, by definition, they're responsible for the stance of the monetary base. They don't necessarily have control over the broader measures of the money supply, but they can control whether there's an adequate amount of Federal Reserve liabilities and circulation to meet people's needs. And so the ideal monetary policy would be something like whenever money demand rises, the Fed would meet it with an expand on the money supply. No more, no less. If money demand falls, the Federal Reserve would contract the money supply by the exact equal amount. No more, no less. Ideally, what you would want is if you have a central bank to have it be a referee in the economic game rather than a player. 
And it can best do that by creating adequate monetary conditions for the need of trade. Whenever it goes beyond that, whenever it starts passing with interest rates, whenever it starts allocating credit, that is absolutely not okay. We don't want the central bank doing that. So from what you've just said, tell me that in a principled way. Because 20 years ago, I could take what you just said and go, absolutely, I pretty much, I'm a free market purist. So I could say, okay, I can live with that. I might disagree with some of it. But in 2021, I listened to what you just said, and I just I have Joe Biden in my head. I have Kamala Harris. I have even some of my Republican friends going, the maids of the market. Okay, it's, it's, I can just see what you just, I'm sure you understand the Constitution. I can see what you just been said made the general welfare clause. Everything is just, hey, it's just the needs of the market. This is what we think the market needs. So where's the restraint or where does that principle restraint will come in from what you just said? That's the absolute next question that we should focus on. Uh, first, I should make clear that I am actually not a fan of the Federal Reserve as an institution. <laughs> a lot of my research is focused on, given that this thing exists, what can we do to make it serve the general we welfare, like you just said, rather than the particular welfare of special interest groups, right? politically connected financial firms and other people like that. I think the economy would work just fine without the Fed. I think that if you look at the macroeconomic data, the evidence that the Federal Reserve has improved U.S. economic performance is very weak. And this is taken as an article of faith amongst macroeconomists. They just assume that before the Fed, we were constantly struggling with booms and busts and financial panics and everything was disorderly. But then we got a central bank and then everything got better. No, if you look at the inflation data, the production data, the variability of these statistics on any margin you would care to look at, the old national banking system under a gold standard, flawed as it was, was as good as the Federal Reserve System on some measures and better on others, right? So I dispute that the Federal Reserve is necessary to, to get us good economic performance. Have you ever actually seen an argument that says it's better? Because only the arguments I've ever seen to, for people who would be pro-Fed is, well, yeah, but imagine what it would be without it. And I'm kind of going, yeah, the your federal, you know, you were founded in 1776. The Fed wasn't the first thing founded. You got you got by a very long time without it. But everyone's like, oh well, it's different now. We have all these global interests. You know, we have Europe, you have Australia, you have China, you have China. And it, imagine what we like. And I've never actually seen an argument that says this is why it's a good thing. It's always more of the, well, if we did, yeah, it mightn't be perfect. But if we didn't have it, my God, all hell would break loose. Again, most people just assume it. They take it as an article of faith that the Federal Reserve has improved U.S. economic performance. And they think that because you can write down, you know, on paper, a mathematical model showing that a perfectly managed fiat money system outperforms a perfect gold standard. Nobody disputes that, but that's not the relevant comparison, right? The relevant comparison is, is a realistically operating fiat money system going to be better or worse than the gold standard that we actually had historically? And so what a lot of economists will do is they'll point to some problem in the national banking system that prevailed from 1865 up until 1913 and say, oh, look, there was a financial panic in this decade, or, or look, there was a big recession in that decade. If we had been off the gold standard, we could have avoided that. Yeah, sure, on paper, right? But if you look at the track record of the Federal Reserve, they really dropped the ball in the Great Depression in the early part of the 20th century. They really dropped the ball in the 2008 financial crisis, right? So that's two huge errors they committed despite the fact that they supposedly had a century of experience and learning. 
So I think that most people who think it obvious that the Federal Reserve is good for the U.S. economy just aren't making apples to apples comparisons. Absolutely. Uh, that, that, sort of, that sort of took us on a tangent. I think that you mm-hmm. asked me what should the Fed do given that it in is- a principles, In a principled right. way, yes. So I think what has to happen is that Congress needs to hand the Federal Reserve a strict monetary rule. Right now, the Federal Reserve has the famous you know, so-called dual mandate, which basically says Congress has informed the Federal Reserve that it ought to pursue full employment and stable prices. Well, great, but that's incredibly broad, right? You can actually get up to a whole bunch of monetary mischief. And if Congress calls the Fed to account, you could say, no, no, we're not up to any mischief. We're just following the mandate, right? We did X, Y, Z things to uphold stable prices and full employment. So I think that we need a much more specific rule. And I think that the content of the rule matters less than the fact that there is a clear and binding rule. Whether you have something like a target for the purchasing power of the dollar, or whether you have something like a nominal income target, which is what I would prefer. What you need is a clear rule that specifies an obvious goal for which there are penalties, professional penalties, if the central bankers fail to hit the rule. Right, right now, the Federal Reserve has a self-adopted average inflation target of 2%. A self-adopted rule isn't a real rule. It's a guideline at best. If there are no penalties for failing to hit it, it's not a real rule. If it doesn't actually bind my hands, it's not a real rule. So I definitely hesitate to get Congress involved in monetary policy, right? Perhaps the only thing worse than unaccountable technocrats is politicians on short-term election cycles getting involved with the printing presses. No, AOC getting involved in that. I can see no problems right there. That's, that's going to be a huge issue. <laughs> I understand that risk. But the fact of the matter is Congress is statutorily the only entity that can reign in the Fed. Presidency can't do it. The judiciary can't do it. The Fed is a creature of Congress and it answers to Congress. And I don't see the Fed really adopting a true rule of its own accord. So we're going to have to have Congress bind its hands. So hopefully we can have that middle ground between you know, two hands off, which leaves the Federal Reserve too free to get into mischief, versus two hands on, where you have uh, Democrats and, frankly, too many Republicans, unfortunately, uh, using the Federal Reserve's balance sheet to promote political projects that really should not be done. So the 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 the, the pe- people like me and I'm, you're you're in the same camp that don't like the Federal Reserve. It's number one. We've just talked about the accountability. There, there is none. It's their own self-gain rules. But the the idea that you can have them open to political pressure to for an election cycle, like you, you know, just using. I know you're not advocating for this, but just when using your words and like stretching them to the limit, like the general welfare clause of, you know, what we need is full, you know, mon- sound monetary policy, full employment. If let's say there's someone in the White House that you don't like and you have the House and the Senate because it's your party and it's an election cycle, you can start pulling on the brakes and start pulling on the levers. Hey, we don't want full employment. Just ease off, you know, do a few policies. And having that power there, isn't it best that we kind of make the case of they, they shouldn't have any of this power at all? Or am I completely wrong by that? No, you're absolutely right to worry about that, which is why I want a real monetary rule. Because if the Fed had a rule that it had to follow with virtually no wiggle room, the ability of politicians to interfere with that would be pretty limited, right? Imagine the Federal Reserve had a rule handed to it by Congress that said, you're going to stabilize the purchasing power of the dollar at what it's at right now, right? No more inflation, no more deflation. 
For the record, I don't think that's a good rule, but it's one that's pretty easy to understand conceptually. So I'm just using it as an example. So if that were the rule that Congress gave the Fed and whoever's in the Oval Office said, hey, I'll, you know, re-election's coming up. How about you run the printing presses a little bit? The central bankers could say, I'm sorry, Mr. President, Congress gave us the rule. We can't do anything. We got to keep on hitting this inflation target. So it would give the central bankers at least some cover and reason not to cave political whims. Uh, throughout the Federal Reserve's history, let's be clear, political influence is the norm, not the exception. Everybody, well, most people know about uh, President Nixon pressuring Fed Chairman Burns to run the printing presses right before, right before a presidential election. And everybody thinks that that's the only time at which this political independent boundary has been transgressed. No, it happens all the time. It's just more subtle and behind the scenes. Even presidents that I would regard as more or less good, like President Reagan, tried to influence the operation of the Federal Reserve in a way that I would regard as inappropriate. So you always have to be on the lookout for political influence. You always have to be on the lookout for private sector influence, right? It's not just politicians who can pressure the mm -hmm. Fed. Goldman Sachs tries to pressure the Fed, right? A while ago, a lawyer who worked for the Federal Reserve named Carmen Segarra released recordings of a meeting between the Federal Reserve representatives and some industry officials, including the Goldman Sachs representative. And the content of those tapes that she recorded in meetings made it very clear that the Federal Reserve was just bending over backwards to accommodate big, large, connected financial institutions. We call that in economics regulatory capture, right? The public organization, which is supposed to uphold the public welfare, gets diverted and captured by private interest to uphold their narrow welfare. So financial fat cats benefit at the expense of Main Street. So you can understand, especially some of the populist anger in recent years, because on some on some issues they have they have right cause to be angry. So I think it's a matter of insulating the monetary authority from both political pressure on the one hand and private slash regulatory capture on the other hand. So getting back to taking a step back then from um, the Federal Reserve on the, the problems of the day. So everything we've just spoke about is kind of at a higher up level. What does the average person on the street feel from the Federal Reserve policy that, you, you, that you're seeing right now? What, what, how is it hurting them or how is it helping them? You know, the average person, you know, the, the, the parents, uh, you know, who have a couple of kids or small business owner, the mom and pop store. You know, a lot of people can, I don't care about the Federal Reserve. That's all the bankers, those millionaires and billionaires up in, in New York. Nothing to do with me. This is irrelevant. How does, the, how does it affect them and their everyday lives? Well, that's a great question. And the simple answer is it's actually gotten a lot harder for Main Street to perceive what's going on. So what the Federal Reserve has done, especially in response to COVID-19, is they just threw the kitchen sink at the financial system. They basically started engaging in what is actually fiscal policy, but using the printing presses, right? The Federal Reserve started making direct loans to large corporations that have nothing to do with the integrity of the financial system, right? The Federal Reserve started buying bonds from Coca-Cola and Berkshire Hathaway. I must have missed what the health of a soda company has to do with the integrity of the U.S. financial system. I, I'm pretty sure there's no plausible argument there. Even more concerningly, the Federal Reserve has started to make direct loans to state and local governments, right? So especially local governments that have been engaging in decades in fiscally irresponsible behavior. 
right? Promising pensioners, pr- making promises to pensioners that they cannot possibly keep because they don't actually have the political will to raise the local taxes enough to pay for this stuff. The Federal Reserve started making loans to troubled state and local governments on better than market terms, on the assumption that you needed the municipal bond market, for example, or the state government bond market to continue operating well to prevent the financial system meltdown. It was all nonsense, of course, right? The bonds of Illinois don't really affect the overall integrity of the financial system. The Federal Reserve does have some statutory authority to engage in less last resort lending, but only to preserve the health of the financial system, to stop a full-blown financial panic. It frankly abused that power in a really, really unfortunate way. And so what's going on is the Federal Reserve is now allocating credit. It's basically steering credit away from how the market would have allocated it and is now resulting in political forces directly allocating credit. What that means for the man on the street is that monetary policy is less and less working for their interests. And it's harder to see now, right? Because the way that monetary policy is working now isn't creating inflation. The man in the street understands inflation, right? He understands the purchasing power of his wallet declining. And he understands that there's a link between that and monetary policy. But now that all this stuff is going on behind the scenes, the most plausible consequence is if we politicize the allocation of credit, our financial markets are going to be less robust and less able to create economic growth. And so we're really laying the foundations for economic sclerosis, right? Rather unimpressive growth rates. And so there's an opportunity cost to that, right? If we only grow at 2% instead of 3% over enough time, right? No, via the miracle of compound growth rates, that could mean that ordinary Americans see less increase in their living standards than they otherwise would. Now, that's hard to observe because we're comparing it to a counterfactual world that never happened. And that means that Joe Public doesn't really have a good ability to monitor and discipline the Fed, even less than they did before. And it was already hard. So it's up to monetary economists who should be shouting from the mountaintops, right, about what's going on right now. But they've been, unfortunately, more than accommodative to the regime changes that have gone on at the central bank. And it's been very very disappointing. One exception is John Cochran, who's done some really, really good public work on this. He was formerly at the University of Chicago, and now he's at the Hoover Institution. At his blog and with his op-eds and with recent Senate testimony, he's done some really good work at trying to raise public awareness at the absolute travesty that monetary policy has become. Okay. So just on a side point, I don't know how much you follow this. Um, Are you following the Great Reset? I am following the Great Reset a little bit. In fact, I wrote an op-ed about it for the Wall Street Journal a couple months ago. Okay, so when you're talking, when you just answered there, it just I didn't actually have this on my things I wanted to talk to you about. When you were just talking about your answer there about you know the laying the standards and lay, growing, uh, you know, having the Fed having power to sort of lay out what should be borrowed in the economy and making it as smooth as possible. And um, I don't know how much you know about the, the Great Reset, but there's everyone's going to guess if they get what they want an ESG score. Um, an environmental society, societal and governmental score. How much, if you have that system and then you have the Federal Reserve propping them up, this is going to destroy everyone who doesn't have the right political opinion. Um, where do you see that potentially going? Or is there something that policy that you could sort of pursue now to go, hey, this if this comes down the track and then the Federal Reserve gets in bed with it, then we need to, this is definitely something Congress needs to get involved in, just as a way of stopping it. Great question. So uh, 
the Great Reset is focused on a number of global governance goals, global governance being very different than global control, apparently. I don't see the difference. But of course, one of them is climate issues. Well, the Federal Reserve recently joined a consortium of other central banks and regulatory agencies, the goal of which is, quote, greening the financial system. Monetary policy, at least as it was understood until the day before yesterday, has nothing to do with climate change. They are completely separate policy issues. I'm not saying climate change is not important. I'm just saying that the Federal Reserve has absolutely no business, none, getting involved with anything like that. And so what you're really seeing here is just, frankly, mission creep, right? It happens at all federal bureaucracies. It's even scarier at the Federal Reserve because they have an, an extraordinary power, right? They can create purchasing power out of thin air like that. They have a monopoly on the creation of Federal Reserve notes, Federal Reserve liabilities, which is, of course, the dollar. And so if you use that printing press ability to engage in otherwise fiscal goals to try and promote greening the financial system, whatever that means, that could get pretty dangerous pretty quickly. And so I am worried about mission creep at the Federal Reserve, especially as it pertains to climate issues. I had a piece in the Wall Street Journal just last week about that specifically. And that's something that I absolutely would like to see Congress step in and say, look, climate policy is our business. That's something that the people's representatives and Congress assembled should deal with. You are a bureaucracy created by us. You have a very specific mandate. Keep monetary, monetary conditions stable. We don't want you veering out of your lane to try and green the financial system. If that's going to be done, it should be Congress that does it. And I'm just frankly terrified that mission creep is going to continue slowly and surely until the Federal Reserve has its hand in every single piece of the economic pie imaginable, unless Congress does something to rein it in. Okay, so now totally diverting the conversation to how we've dealt with uh, economic policy over the last year. So every government around the world, America is obviously the, the one we're talking about most here, but Ireland, Europe, England, Australia has this con is pretty much running unofficially MMT, modern monetary policy, where they can just print as much money as they want and just to hell with it. And, you know, hey, chances are when this all comes down, I won't be elected. So, hey, it's not my problem. But over the last year, because of coronavirus, we have literally, and we're just going to talk about some policies that you followed in your country, your debt has skyrocketed. Your printing presses have skyrocketed. The stat I can't get over is one out of every $5 in the total existence of America was printed last year. That alone should scare the living daylights. So talk to people about that policy, but also bring it to the, the person on the street, how that is a really bad policy to have. And it hurts small businesses. It hurts the people. You know, I hate using all these terms because they're not true, but like the middle class or, you know, the single parent families, you know, all these terms that shouldn't be around, but all the people who are at the lower economic scale. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot there that we got to chew on. I don't think that we're quite in modern monetary theory territory just yet. I mean, we're, we're getting in that direction, right? $28 trillion. So as long as we're still actually borrowing money in capital markets to finance deficit spending. And it's true that the Federal Reserve is sort of helping the bond market a little bit because it's stepping up its purchases of Uncle Sam's bonds. Modern monetary theory, what they're really looking for is to completely ignore the market for U.S. government debt and to actively finance any and all government expenditures by running the printing presses. That's not happening yet, 
But I think that we're closer to that now than we've, than we've ever gotten. And I absolutely would not want to see that. I regard that as economic madness. And it's really depressing to me that modern monetary theory, which has actually no academic respectability, right? Academic economists, scholarly economists really don't think much of this thing, even if they're on the left. But, you know, it's big in policy circles. It's big on Twitter. And apparently Joe Biden is using staffing his administration with, you know, based on whoever has the most Twitter followers. So that's obviously something that's, 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 uh, that we need to worry about. I am worried about the lack of fiscal and monetary discipline in the United States, because ultimately I think what's going to happen is as long as we continue running these deficits, that's just the future tax liability. And we're going to have to raise taxes eventually, including on the middle class, Right. It's not popular to say, but right now, the middle class in the United States does not actually pay very much federal income tax. The federal income tax system in the United States is already highly progressive. And it makes a lot of people mad when you point it out, but right, the data are the data. They say what they say. But the fact of the matter remains, you can't continue to run these deficits and you can't continue to pile up debts forever eventually investors are going to get a little bit worried about Uncle Sam paying back what it's agreed to pay back. They're going to demand higher interest rate yields. That's going to make mean interest payments on the federal debt. We're going to continue to occupy an increasingly large portion of government expenditures. That's going to crowd out other social services that might benefit the middle and uh, people on the, on the lower end of the income distribution. So I'm really worried about what Adam Smith called in 1776, the juggling trick of debts, deficit, and currency debasement, right? All governments want to do this if they can. The United States have mo has more or less avoided doing that up until now. And while we're not yet in red alert territory, we're as close now as we've ever been, I think. Okay, so just for my own sake, because I, I, I'm not a, I don't have your sort of CV and, and expertise, but what would be the definition? Because I, I, I would have said it is uh, monitor, monitor, MMT over the last year. You know that the, the skyrocketing debt, the printing presses. What definition would you say then that to look out for when we hit this? Is it you know is it a certain amount of debt? Is it a certain amount of printing of money? Is it is there a certain criteria you would say is okay? Now we're officially MMT. Just from my own yeah, curiosity. So the the obvious, the most obvious thing would be if the Federal Reserve actively ran the printing press to finance federal government fiscal obligations. Right. So imagine Congress says, hey, Fed, we want to spend $700 billion on XYZ things. The Federal Reserve prints up $700 billion and buys that much in government bonds. Okay. That that's your be, criteria. That's pretty much when we're there. Okay. Right. And so it's not an either or thing. There's a continuum here. What you want to look at is what fraction on the secondary market of government bonds eventually find their way onto the Federal Reserve's books. Because right now, the Federal Reserve does not ever loan Uncle Sam money directly. When the Federal Reserve buys government bonds, it buys them on the secondary market. It means it buys government bonds that have already been purchased by private investors, for example. So, But that doesn't mean that the Federal Reserve can't help Uncle Sam finance its deficits, right? If the Federal Reserve steps up secondary bond purchases, that's going to drive up prices and drive down yields which means that investors would be willing to accept lower yields because they know that they at least have a buyer in the Federal Reserve, which means that going to the primary market, Uncle Sam can borrow more cheaply. Again, that can't happen forever, right? That's a short run phenomenon because eventually that liquidity is going to circulate 
drive up prices, you're going to get an inflationary effect, especially as the economy starts to recover from COVID. So that's not a foolproof strategy. But nonetheless, there is a lot of wiggle room, especially when the boundary between fiscal policy and monetary policy approaches a sort of gray area. So what I would worry about is I would look at the total amount of bond auctions that Uncle Sam auctions off in a given time period. And then I would try and find out over that same time period, what fraction of that new debt eventually finds its way onto the Federal Reserve's books, right? Because you can actually support government borrowing through the secondary market rather than the primary market. So once that figure starts to get, you know, pick a figure, 40%, 50%, whatever, once the figure starts to get in that territory, I would start to get a little worried. Okay, so then onto the, you've written a couple of great articles recently about, um, over the last three, four weeks, um, about the breaking down the, the different packages that you've passed. You passed a, was it $1.9 trillion? It's just incredible. Like, I rem- I've been in your politics a long time. I remember being part of the people who freaked out at $787 billion. Remember, that number is in sketched in my brain. It's 2008. Yeah, if you say that to anybody who talks about economics, seven hundred eighty-seven billion, you know what you're talking about. Whereas now it's like ah, one point nine trillion, and then you've now had this uh, infrastructure where everything is infrastructure. You know, Kristen Gillibrand run, you know, uh, you know, childcare is infrastructure. She's tweeting the other day. Uh, what was that? Was that one point seven trillion? No, it's three trillion, isn't it? No, two point three trillion. The first 2. round, two point three trillion. Where does this end? God only knows. I mean, I was, I'm just as flabbergasted as you are. I never thought that we would see a sort of resurgence in old school Keynesian economics, right? Spend, 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 right? Run those deficits, inject that purchasing power into the private economy, and eventually things will get better. There's a reason that that economic theory fell out of academic respectability in the 1970s and the 1980s, because it doesn't work. Right? It makes a whole bunch of predictions about things that should happen that just aren't true. Unfortunately, it's great politics, right? The sort of interventionist economics, Keynesian economics, now modern monetary theory, they give politicians an excuse to do what they already want to do, which is either run the printing presses or deficit spend and shower benefits on their preferred constituencies, right? Because that's good for getting reelected. As a politician, you want to win re-election, which means that your ideal strategy is to concentrate benefits on the interest groups that support you and disperse the costs on everybody else, preferably people outside of your district. Well, when everybody's doing this, right, the result is that your account, your economy slowly turns into a basket case. So I'm very disappointed in public policy over the past year, really the past decade. I just view it as a repudiation of all the hard-won economic knowledge of the 1970s and the 1980s. There's a reason that old-school Keynesian economics got swept away in the new classical consensus that actually pointed out that there are these things called constraints, and they mean that you can't have everything that you want, so you have to be prudent when you spend the people's money. It's just bizarre to me that without even an argument, right, it's just, you know, we had an economic crisis, and now we're just going to throw everything out the window. Never let a crisis go to waste, right? Rahm Emanuel said, and the Biden administration seems to be recognizing that all too well. And I think that it's going to ultimately hurt the American people. Yeah, absolutely. There was a great quote um, from years and years ago, Ronald Reagan, before he was president, he went on Johnny Carson and he was like, you know, you're talking about reigning in federal government, which is funny because, you know, he's he's been dead, you know, at such a long period of time and we still have the same problems. But he was like famously asked and he gave a great answer. He's like, you know, how do you balance the budget in D.C.? And he's like, gave a great answer. He was like, the same way you keep your virtue, you learn to say no. 
And obviously the crowd erupted, whereas now no one would, not even Republicans would applaud that line. No, no, we never say no, we give it to everyone. But the thing that frustrates me most is that the policies that you're doing right now, you know, everyone always wants to talk about the Goldman Sachs, you know, the Richard, the, the Berkshire Hathaways, Warren Buffett, all these policies, the people who are going to feel it most are the people at the bottom. And that's the frustrating thing. Like, it's all been dressed up as, oh, we're so compassionate. Look at all this stuff. We care about the poor. That's why we're spending all these trillions of dollars. We're doing all these policies. But it's actually in the long term going to hurt these people the most because, you know, my boss, Glenn Beck, is still going to be a millionaire or however how much money he's worth. I don't know. And I don't care. It, you know, what policies happen, it might affect his business. He might be able to hire as many people, but he's still going to live a really good life. He's Glenn Beck. People on the lower scale aren't. How do we get that message? Or is there someone out there that we can sort of support and say that is breaking down these policies to say, listen, it might sound great. It's, you know, it's, it's window dressing, but, you know, it's not, it's actually going to hurt you the most. That is the magic bullet. And I wish I had an answer. The only thing that I can come up with, which frankly isn't very persuasive because it's not immediate, right? There's not an immediate benefit to it. The only successful anti-poverty program over human history that's been sustainable is economic growth, not transfer payments. They just don't work. Right? They don't permanently lift people out of poverty and the political will isn't even there to fully finance them with taxes. If you want to increase the well-being of the worst off among us, the best thing that you can do is grow the size of the economic pie. To grow the size of the economic pie, you need markets. Right? You need markets to allocate scarce resources, especially scarce capital to its highest valued uses. Right, You need to abstain from consumption today, save resources, invest them so you can increase your productive capacity tomorrow. And year by year, things should get just a little bit better. But what most people don't realize is with through all these attempts to engineer prosperity now, government-led prosperity, they invite the very evils that we're supposedly trying to fight against. They entrench political privilege. They benefit largely the middle class and the upper class at the expense of the lower class, right? And, I, and again, I hate using those terms because they're frankly demeaning, but I just don't know any other parsimonious way to express it. I agree. But I think that, I think that a lot of people who through no fault of their own find themselves on the lower half of the income distribution, they're being sold a bill of goods by the federal government, by Democrats as well as Republicans. And that bill of goods says, give us more power, let us spend, let us print, we'll fight for you and make your life better. But it won't, because the way that you create wealth is let markets allocate resources to the sources that are going to create the most goods and services in the future, which means that you need a robust capital allocation sector, which means that you need Congress to be prudent in its spending, and that you need the Federal Reserve to be prudent in its printing. You need both of those things at the same time. Otherwise, markets are not going to work their magic. Right? People sort of wonder, why on earth have we seen this growth slowdown right, since the year 2000? Look at what's happened to the size and scope of the federal government. Look at what's happened to the number of pages in the federal register. Look at what's happened to the number of regulations everybody has to follow just to try and earn their living. You're making production harder. And we're supposedly surprised that we get less production. That's exactly what sound economics would predict. If you want to increase the welfare of the least among us, leave them free to earn their living, to produce, stop getting in their way. Maybe a basic social safety net too, we can argue about that, right? But mostly, I fully agree with uh, 
President Reagan that government isn't the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. Mm-hmm. So we, we're running out of time. I had so much other stuff I want to talk to you about, but I want to ask you two quick questions. One is, we've talked about, touched on quite a few serious issues. Um, and one of the things I'm always trying to tell people who listen to the show is, look, you guys and, and as a world, because the great research affects everyone, socialism, all these bad ideologies, all these bad monetary policies, they affect everyone. But I always tell people that, yeah, it's bad. And yes, we face major problems, but we can get past these if we get A, B, and C. And I always say A, B, and C are the founding principles of America, leaving people alone, the individual is sovereign, let people pursue their own happiness, let them grow their own wealth, that the best wealth, the best welfare program is a job. Do you agree with that assessment? Not the policies that I've just advocated for, even if you do, but the principle of we can still solve all these problems. It's not like, oh, we're done. We give up. Let's just, you know, throw up that white flag. It's over. No, I still think that the old school fusionist Reagan consensus is basically correct. My only problem with President Reagan is that he didn't try hard enough to make war on the federal bureaucracy. He should have done more. But that exact consensus, right, it's sometimes referred to as neoliberalism by people who don't understand it, or sometimes called the Washington consensus. Those policies, right, the policy consensus of the 1990s, I think that's basically right. Free markets and limited government is still the best way that we know to create wealth. And that means that we've got to get our ducks in a row on a bunch of different issues. We've got to get Congress to restrain its spending and actually focus on reining in some of these out-of-control regulatory agencies. We need monetary policy to be subject to the rule of law. And this is great because now I can talk a little bit about my book. I'm co-authoring a book with Peter Becky and Daniel Smith titled Money and the Rule of Law, which is all about what we need to do to make sure that the Federal Reserve serves the American people rather than crony capitalists or crony politicians. Uh, The book is being published by Cambridge University Press at the end of May, and you can buy it on Amazon. And I really encourage people to check that out, to look for solutions to all the monetary mischief that we got in. But I do want to emphasize monetary policy is only one thing that's gone wrong. We need to fix it, but it's not the only thing that we need to fix. We need a sustained revival of constitutional government in all walks of life. And that means, in addition to restraining Congress and the Federal Reserve, devolving power to state and local governments so people can make those decisions for themselves in a political environment where we actually have a greater degree of accountability. The only problem with the Constitution is that we've ignored it for 40 plus years. 100 plus years. <laughs> yeah. Let us not forget the terrible yeah. administration of Woodrow Wilson, where everything. Really so I was just going to go say, you, you, there's a criteria. There's only one criteria. It's work for the blaze. You have to hate Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> Last question. Even even more than FDR. FDR gets too much hate compared to Wilson. Uh, well, look, the both of them are. You know, I I don't see many redeeming qualities in both of them, and I get a lot of hate anytime I say anti FDR stuff. But it's like he won the war. I'm like, yeah, but you know, interning people is not really a good thing to do. You know, no, no, no. He was, he was definitely horrible, but uh, there would have been no FDR without Wilson. So I think we got to exactly. Oh, and then you know, you can talk about the teddy bear. We can we can talk about progressives all day long. But just oh, last absolutely. question. Um. The one thing I'm very interested in, just in your opinion on this, is I, I I share all the concerns we've talked about about the Federal Reserve, but I can see a world in 10 years where the Federal Reserve is no longer an issue. Not because we've done any of the stuff that we both said you should, not because of Congress you know, standing up to them, but through the likes of cryptocurrency, where the, the idea of a dollar is, it sh- it'll probably exist in some format, 
But if you look at the numbers over the last sort of one to two years, you know, the actual amount of people who carry physical money, it's now digits on a on your card, on your Visa card, on your debit card, whatever you have, that it's going to become so irrelevant. I'm not saying the dollar will die. You know, and there's always those people. The dollar will never exist. I think it will exist in some format, but how it is, I don't know what it is. But I think that there's going to be so much more towards cryptocurrency as we go to more stuff. It might be Bitcoin, it might be Iridium, it might be XRP, it might be Litecoin, it might be something else that hasn't even been created. Thoughts on that? Uh, I'm actually not an expert on crypto. I know very little about it, other than I'm rooting for it. And mm -hmm. I did, you know, tick myself for never buying Bitcoin and, you know, the massive, massive <laughs> gains that I could have had because I didn't understand it. I never thought it was going to be a thing, right? There are so many strong network effects with monetary, uh, monetary use where you want to use a given currency like the dollar, depending on how many other people accept the dollar, right? And so mm -hmm. the reason that the dollar is so robust as a monetary network is you can buy stuff with dollars, not just in the United States, but virtually all over the world. And so because I thought that means that new currencies have a really hard time getting started. So when I first heard about Bitcoin, I thought, you know, it's, it's crypto fiat. There's no asset there. It's not going to be a thing. Boy, was I wrong. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily money yet because it's not generally accepted in exchange. And it's uh, frankly subject to too much price fluctuation to be stable as a money. But that doesn't mean it couldn't become money. I'm yeah. not going to guess whether or not that happens because I think that I've proved just by the fact that I'm not long on Bitcoin, that I don't really understand it. But I think that the technology has a lot of promise, right? I think that there are some people right now who are experimenting with ways to combine cryptography and the distributed ledger with things like uh, claims to an actual asset like gold. So if you could actually get like a digital gold payments app up and running, that might be a good way that people could hedge themselves and get involved in another monetary network that wasn't under the control of whatever is happening to the dollar. Absolutely. And like the, the one, I think there's just so many advantages to it. Again, I don't know whether it's which Bitcoin or if it's either. I don't know. I just mean as a, as a fundamental principle, this idea that, you know, you know, the idea that I buy something like, you know, bottle of seven up in Ireland, it's what, two euros. It, it could be four bucks in America, whatever it is. The idea that we can all look at it kind of go, it's 0 0.001 Bitcoin or, and it's 0 0.002 Bitcoin in America. And you get to see it and the you transfer of money. The idea, like I paid someone in Bitcoin, uh, was it about two months ago? They had it in 20 minutes. It, like literally, they just, I just, they gave me their address. Boom. This idea of just totally cutting out all the middlemen and the big selling point, which you know is Bitcoin, is there's a limit. There's, there's an X, infinite, you know, finite amount. When it gets to that amount, it stops. So, right. It's sort of like principles. slowly approaching 21 million, I think, is the hard cap on that. Yes. And it's at yeah. 18 at the minute. So, okay, but it, cool. it doesn't hit it for another hundred years. So it's still going to be releasing them, but just that fundamental principle. I don't know. It's just something I was just curious that all these problems we talk about will go away in maybe 10, 20 years time because there'll be a new creation. That would be nice. Uh, I'll, I'll direct your listeners attention to my colleague, William Luther, who's a professor of economics at Florida Atlantic university. He is the Bitcoin guy. He's written a ton of scholarly papers on Bitcoin, but more importantly, he's also written a bunch of popular articles about Bitcoin and the prospects of Bitcoin as money and separating you know, the money function from the ledger slash payments function and sort of analyzing that. He's done fantastic work. He's really the guy that you want to check out if you have questions about the future of crypto. Awesome. Where can people find your work? So I have a website, awsalter.com. All of my scholarly journal articles are there. All of my popular articles, <clears throat> excuse me, like my Wall Street Journal articles are there. I'm also on Twitter, at Alex W. Salter. 
And I'm on Facebook too. So look me up. I'd be happy to talk to you. I'd be happy to share any of my published work with you. And I look forward to hearing from you. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I, could, <laughs> I could see that. Come. Give yeah. him a follow. <laughs> check out his website. I'm on, free, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and, and MeWe, Freedom's Disciple. America, we finish up the show where we do every week. We salute you, the American people, the sentiments of Tocqueville. America is great because Americans are good. You're not great because of Trump or Biden or the Republicans or the Democrats. You're great because of each and every one of your founding principles. Subscribe and <laughs> see you next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern. God bless. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn. On the Blaze Radio Network.